Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mindful Metal Jacket. I am Joe List. Happy summertime, 4th of July weekend to the American folks. Maybe there's some people listening overseas that uh, don't care about the 4th of July. Maybe there's people right here in America that don't care about the 4th of July. Whatever you care about, whatever you love, however you feel, welcome. It's summertime here in the Northern Hemisphere. I'm enjoying the hell out of it. I love the summer. Isn't it strange to think, it's always hard to imagine the other seasons when you're in the midst of one season. I don't know what the metaphor is there. When I'm walking around, it's 85 degrees. I'm in shorts and a t-shirt. And it's hard to think about just a couple months ago, I was in thermal underwear and boots and a you know, winter coat and a hat shivering. And, uh, but winter will be back upon us. The seasons are nice. I'm glad I live in an area that has seasons. I guess everywhere has seasons, but I guess extreme seasons, whatever. I never know what I'm talking about. Sometimes I think I should rehearse these or write them beforehand. I'm just free flowing like a windy breeze on an old lake. How are you doing, folks? I hope you're doing well. It's been nice to uh, hear from you. Thank you for all the extremely kind and thoughtful reviews on the iTunes. I don't know if it helps, but it helps me. It helps me uh, feel good about myself and about the show, and it makes me feel of service. So I appreciate you writing those. I think it helps. The podcast maybe moves it up. The best thing you can do for the podcast is tell some people about it. Tell some friends email somebody, go right now, copy the link, send it to a friend who's anxious or enjoys conversation or likes comedy, whatever it is, share it, spread it around, tweet it, Instagram it. Unless you're taking a break from Twitter and Instagram, don't break your break for the sake of this show. I uh, deleted Twitter off my phone. I've been enjoying the break. I've gone on a couple times to tweet something, but then I avoid going into the trending and the conversations and all that crap. Um, doing my best to stay away from the phone as much as possible. We talk about it on this episode. I got my friend Carmen Lynch on. Um, she's got a new album called Vertically Obese. Highly recommend you go check it out. It's um, I don't think it's fully out. It's available for pre-sale right now, but that really helps um, the album when you go order it pre-sale. I don't know how anything works, but I guess it moves it up the the chain or the ladder or trending or whatever. I don't know how it works, but make sure to check it out and listen to it. Carmen is one of my favorite comedians. Everybody I know that knows comedy, that loves comedy, loves Carmen's comedy. She is uh, fantastic. And I only had her on the show because I love talking to her. I thought, hey, I'll get Carmen in here. We'll have a nice conversation always nice to talk to her. And I discovered on the show in real time, as you'll hear, that she is a sufferer sufferer of uh, panic attacks and uh, anxiety. So that was really interesting to learn. We talk a lot about panic attacks in this episode and uh, how we deal with them. And we talk a little bit about fear of death. It gets a little heavy in there. And um, figuring out what you value with your time and trying to avoid social media. So it was a great conversation. I always enjoy talking to Carmen. She's a incredibly uh, thoughtful person and very wise and smart and very funny, obviously, and just a genuine pleasure to be around and to talk to. So I think you'll enjoy that. And um, yeah, I recommend 
a nice break from social media, particularly Twitter and your phone in general, doing everything I can to do that. And, um, but in the meantime, when you are using your phone, feel free to shoot me an email. I've gotten some really nice emails and, um, spread the word about the show. If you could trying to grow it and, um, do our little part in making, uh, perhaps a kinder and gentler world, even if it's just for you, the person that is sitting there listening to this right now. Um, a couple quotes, a couple quotes come to mind. Let's give you a little love and wisdom. I had one prepared, but this one just came into my butt. Um, I believe the Dalai Lama said, if you think you're too small to change, oh, fuck, I blew it. Oh, God, we're not even going to edit it. We're just going to leave it, you know? Maybe I'll have to just finish this. I'll do this. I'll tease it and do this quote next week. Here's the quote I had prepared already. Uh, Carmen and I talk about Carmen. Carmen and I talk about Eckhart Tolle quite a bit. And here's a quote from him that I enjoyed. Whatever the present moment contains, accept it as if you had chosen it. That's Eckhart Tolle. Check out his Instagram page or his YouTube. He's fantastic. His book, The Power of Now, helped change my life. And the other quote I was going to say, Dalai Lama, if you think you're too small to change the world, try sharing a tent with a mosquito. Hmm, folks? All right, enjoy my conversation with the wonderful Carmen Lynch. I'm going to go hate myself for screwing up this intro. Bye. We're live. I love it. Hi. Hi, Carmen. We're here with Carmen Lynch. <laughs> I, I will have given you like an intro. I'll do like a solo intro where I say oh, okay. thing, nice things and I'll do like a, like a quote of some sort. And then I'm so glad it. I don't have to hear that nice intro because that would just make me feel really uncomfortable. No, that was ridiculous. What if it's what if it's terrible? What if I'm just like this, this is a yeah. comic? I've seen her. She bombs a lot, and uh, she's mean. No one else could do the show, so I asked Carmen. Yeah, it was fresh out of bodies. Well, this is uh, I'm happy to have you because this is interesting to me because I don't know you to be an anxious person, but you're saying you're perfect for this show, which makes me think that you are an anxious person. Well, it, it, I just thought you asked me because you must have known, but um, but I guess not. I do kind of tend to hide it. Like sometimes people are like, on stage, you look so comfortable. But I think I'm, I'm I mean, I'm much better now. But when I first started stand up, I was so nervous and I was constantly sweating and it was just so scary. I don't know why I still did it. I guess just the the idea of stand up just always, you know, was bigger than the the nerves. Well, Sarah was always like that too. It still is like that. She gets really, really nervous before shows, like hours beforehand. And she's like 20 years in. Do you still have that now? I get fidgety more than nervous. Like now I just get nervous if like, you know, the president of HBO is coming, you know, not that he would anyway, but I'm just saying like, if somebody important is there, then I get really nervous. Cause I'm like, I have to do a good job. But if it's just a regular show, I just get very like, fidgety i have to stretch and breathe and stuff you know yeah but it's that. it's nothing like it was before right yeah all that stuff that still somehow feels like embarrassing like you feel weird having to pace around and you act like you're not anxious you yeah know, i don't feeling... understand go ahead no i was just like that feeling where like i'm pretending i'm like i'm not anxious i'm just uh 
I'm right, just right, right. a crazy person. I like to move around and do push-ups instead of just being like, yeah, I'm anxious about the performing live for an audience of people. Like, um, who was I talking to once? I think it was Mike Yard. And he's like, I've never been nervous. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, it's just, you know, I get up there, whatever happens, happens. And I'm like, how? Like he just, you know, he's just one example, but some people just can chit chat till the very last minute, even at an audition show. I have to be alone. I have to act like I have to almost hide. So no one talks to me so I can focus, you know? Right. Maybe first of all, Mike drinks a bunch before the show. Maybe that has something to do with it. <laughs> and also I think maybe, I mean, I'm just taking shots here. I mean, some of it might be learned behavior and upbringing, but he's also, I feel like, lived kind of a hard life. Like yeah. He'd be like, uh, he's told stories where he was like a drug dealer and in gunfights and... He's gotten shot too. Yeah, I think once you yeah. get shot, you got to, I mean, doing stand-up at New York Comedy Club feels a little less... Maybe I should have tried to have a harder life. That's true. No, we should shoot each other before our shows. <laughs> before the next show. <laughs> Um, well, you said an interesting thing about like continuing to go on because the idea of standup was like bigger than the nerves. I always talk about that with my therapist where it's like, I was so anxious. I'm anxious about, I'm scared of everything. I'm anxious about death and I'm anxious about anxiety. I'm so anxious about death. I'm so glad you said that. We have to talk about that later. Keep going because I'm super anxious about death. Great. I'm getting better with it. I have some things that might help. Oh, good, good, good. Um, but to me, the greatest anxiety of all, my biggest fear of all was to never pursue comedy. Like that trumped any fear of like taking the subway to the city, meeting strangers, performing for strangers and taking a chance like that at no, uh, to have no job security or anything like that. A bigger fear was to never try that was my biggest fear even bigger than everything else did you that's have so like funny because i i never looked at it that way i looked at it more like um well i guess it's like stand-up but the idea of not being able to share my point of view I, that sounds so narcissistic like i have things to say but the idea of not being able because i was very shy growing up like i was i i shut myself out of like social situations. Cause I had like, I wore a back brace. I had scoliosis. So I was just really like nervous about people seeing the real me or touching my back, you know? So I think, and then I was repressed because, um, I lived in Spain and then I moved to the States when I was eight and I had a little bit of an accent. My English wasn't perfect. And I, people would, could tell kids could tell, you know, and they would like laugh at certain things I said. So I always held back. So I think one day when I did stand up, I was like, Oh my God, I get to say whatever I want. And that idea of, of sharing was bigger than anything. Wow. See, I, yeah. I, I relate to that so much. Not, um, not the being an immigrant and having a back brace. That's, <sighs> that's, uh, that's really, well, nerdy, I mean, I was but... born here, but yeah. <laughs> oh, you yeah, were born yeah, here. Yeah. I thought yeah, you I, was, I, I was born in California and then we lived in Spain till I was eight, but we like lived, I lived there as a child until I was eight, Oh, okay. but I was born so, here. Yeah. So how long did you live in California before going to Spain? I was three when we moved. Oh, okay. So you're not an immigrant at all. I... No, 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 no. But I mean the, the developmental years, like 
I only spoke Spanish at my, at my schools in Spain. And then, and then I came out here and I was like, you know, I was, I was just shy, but I did things that were kind of stupid that really embarrassed me. And I think that made me just kind of go, okay, then don't do anything because you don't want to get made fun of. Right. Yeah. Those are formative years, four, five, six, seven. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Um, Shit. What was I going to say? Something about, oh, but I was going to say, I relate to that a lot in that that was the attraction of comedy to me was I felt like I grew up in a big family, only one sibling, but we were always with, my mother's siblings and all her kids. So there was always like 25 people. And I was the youngest of my generation of kids, which there were a bunch of us. And I always felt like a baby and I got babied and it was hard for me to get a word in and also kind of picked on. And the idea of not feeling seen or heard to use buzz terms, the idea of like, now I have the microphone and everybody's listening to me. And that was really attractive and still is to me. Me too. Yes. The idea, that's why at first I thought it was just the idea of writing a joke because I love writing a new joke. And um, about four or five years into comedy, I quit because I was getting a lot of like negative feedback from my family because, you know, they're very traditional. Right. Hence the big cross behind me. But, um, but, um, and then I re and then I just wrote, I was like, you know what, this isn't working, whatever. I'll just write a book. And then about a year later after I quit, I was like, wait a second, this is not what I like. This, my favorite part is going on stage. Right. Yeah. You know, so I want to talk about your comedy a little bit. So when did you start and when was that break? I started around like right before nine 11. Okay. And I was real, I remember when that happened, I was like, Oh, well, I guess, I guess I can't perform now. It's really bad out, but I'm not getting shows anyway. So, but, um, it was probably like 2000 and then around Oh four, I got last comic standing and premium blend. Oh, wow. And then, um, and then I just never did new jokes. I kind of just relied on the ones that worked because right. I didn't know how to discipline myself. I've always had like a boss or someone to tell me what to do. Yeah. So I just, I was too scared to try new material. And then it just kind of just, I stopped maybe in 05 from 05 to like 06. Wow. So you had TV credits and stopped. Yeah, but it was, um, though, I guess maybe it was like end of 05. Like those had been, um, those had fizzled out by then, right. you know? And you can't, you know, I mean, now we know, like when you get something, you got to keep the momentum going, like write new jokes, you know, sell, write a book, da, da, da. And I didn't know that yet because I feel like I'd gotten things a little too soon. So I was like, oh, I'll just do my same eight minutes all the time. The ones that were on, you know, TV. Right. And yeah. I felt really bored. And then I was like, my parents hate this. And then I just quit. I just stopped. I didn't quit. I just kind of just didn't tell anyone and I stopped. Yeah. It's like Nate Bargatze's old joke. There's no one to quit to. Yeah. And the time he used Cosby as an example, he's like, I can't just call Cosby and be like, listen, Bill, I'm out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there really, yeah. there really is. Even at our level now as successful comedians, if we quit, it's still just people would just slowly be like, hey, I haven't seen Carmen in a while. I know. Like, and it's funny when you, when they say that they never think that they just go, have you been like, shooting a movie or are you in LA? I'm like, I wish. No, 
we were just talking about that. Like we went down, there's a comedy show happening right now during quarantine down the street from our house at a diner. It's like an outdoor show. And we went down there to see the comics and you realize you're like, it's good to see them, but some comics you go three or four months without seeing because everyone's on the road. You just don't bump into each other. Yeah. We were laughing about that feeling in comedy. Sometimes you're like, where have you been? And people are like here. I just, we just haven't run into each other. It's like, I thought you were on the road. You're like, no, I didn't do anything. I've just been around. Um, but anyway, I know there's so many of us. It's, there's too many, but I'm hoping COVID, you know. I'm hoping COVID gets rid of the bad ones. That's what everyone's hoping, but the bad ones never leave. They're always I know, around. I know. Um, but it is, it is a strange and interesting thing, the idea of like, because I went through that too. I did live at Gotham in 08 was my first uh, TV thing. And my instinct was, I'm also like an idiot alcoholic, but like my instinct was to take my foot off the gas of like, okay, I made it. Exactly. Now I can relax. Yes. (laughs) It's the opposite, but nobody really tells you that. No, I thought the same thing in my career when I I would get like a manager or an agent. I'm like, phew, now I got someone working for me. And they're like, no, no, now I need a packet. I need a headshot. I need you to change your glasses and, you know, lose weight (laughs) or whatever. Um, So, yeah, it's weird. I guess this is probably for all fields. I mean, most people listening probably aren't comedians, but it's probably true of all fields that when you first get started, there's nobody really there to show you what to do. That's how I felt anyways. Well, also we're in New York. Like I didn't even mean to do stand up. I just, I came to New York to do acting and I just fell into it. You know, I went to a show and I was like, this is a job. This looks amazing. You know, <laughs> right. like I didn't know it was an option. So, so I was just kind of doing it my way. I didn't know there were any rules or like, you know, d- self-discipline, all that stuff. And, uh, and then in New York, you, you're seen too soon. So if you do write good jokes, even if you're nervous still or shy, you know, you get stuff almost too early, you know? Right. And I found myself, I mean, Last Comic was the very first TV credit I had. And there were 20 of us in LA. And I'd been doing it like maybe three years. Right. And I was with like Rich Voss and all these people. And I was so nervous. I was so happy when I didn't make it into the house. I can't even tell you. Like, I'm so, I was so happy because I was so scared of the, like, Corey Kahaney and all these big, you know, Russ Manif. I was scared of everybody. It's so weird because a lot of those people now looking back, I do a lot of this with retrospectively thinking about things. Like, a lot of those comics were probably like eight years in at the time. Yeah. Or like 10 years in or something like that. It's weird to think now that we're closer to 20 years in, because I started in October of 2000. Uh-huh. So not long, just about, I guess, 11 months before 9-11. Is that right? Yeah. So looking back, a lot of these things, there was guys you'd see and be like, wow, there's Dan Natterman. And I was like, he was probably like seven years in at the time or something. I know. That's so weird. I remember walking to the comic strip and I was like, Karen Burgreen is here. <laughs> you know and yeah. uh and then Lucian passed me and I was like oh, my life is gonna change you know I was right. so nervous I'm like things are happening so quickly and I'm, not, I'm just writing jokes that's all you have to do it's so interesting to look back on all those things so you so you quit for what a year you said or a year and a half I just quit and then about a year later I realized 
I got a real job. I started dating like a civilian. My life was real. And, uh, and I was like, this sucks. And from then on, I never looked back. I didn't even care if anyone in my family said this isn't right. I didn't care if I was broke. I, in a way, I'm just really happy that happened. Cause I, I just had so many doubts in my head about what the right thing to do was. And, uh, and then when I started performing again, uh, I was like, this is it. Wow. That's so interesting. And so your family has, was not supportive. Are they supportive? now? They were just scared. I mean, my dad's had the same job his whole life. He's been in the military and then he worked, uh, you know, he retired and worked in the same job. My mom was a nurse a whole, her whole life. Um, every one, every one of my Spanish relatives has had the same job, you know, no one's in the arts. So everything I heard was either like, do you have health insurance? Do you have a 401k, you know, and, uh, how are you going to meet someone? You know, it's that whole, like, we need to get married and have kids thing. Right. Right. Yeah. That, and it's a lot of pressure. That, that seems to me to be one of the um, real difficulties with being a woman in comedy is that you can't, it's not charming to be sleeping in your car at a rest stop <laughs> or to have three so, roommates. You know what I mean? Like No, especially when I went to college and I was pre-med, you know, so, so the, I had dreams that I didn't care that they changed, but they were like, what happened? Why did we pay all this money for you to go to school? Yeah. See, I'm glad I never had to deal with that. I never went to a second of college. So oh, good for you. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely, you could tell my parents were like, I thought you were going to do something other than like the open mic at Howard Johnson's in Boston yeah. on Wednesdays. But um, I've always felt Sarah and I was talking about like, if you want to be start off as a woman doing like the road, it's, it would be ideal to be independently wealthy. So you can be like, I'm staying at the Hilton. I don't need the yeah. condo. I'm not sharing a condo. I'm not staying in anyone's apartment because. Yeah. That... I mean, yeah. No, go Sorry. ahead. No, I mean, there were, there were certain hotels that I, I just think like, where are you staying? Oh, this cute little place. It's adorable. <laughs> like, you know, you just can't, you can't share certain things, but you know, the perks of stand up is you never know when something good is going to happen. So as soon as I started doing like military tours, my dad was in the military. So all that just kind of opened their eyes. To, you know, Letterman was a thing, you right. know, but at the beginning it was like, you're going where, how much do they pay you? Are they paying you? And after a while it was like, how much are they paying you? A million dollars. Can you believe it? And then she's just stopped asking. Right. <laughs> Cause I was like, I can't, I can't deal. Yeah. That's hard to explain. I remember one time my dad made me laugh, but I was, doing some gig and I was still living at home and I, I had a gig in like Western Massachusetts and it was like a three hour ride or two and a half hour car ride. And it was paying like, you know, 50 bucks. And he's like, you're driving five hours round trip and you're going to work and they're going to pay you 50 bucks. And I was like, well, the work is easy. It's my favorite thing to do. So it's not really yeah. work. It's fun. And so I was like, imagine just imagine it. Cause I had heard someone else say this. I was like, imagine there's just like a bucket with $50 in it. And I'm just driving up there to go pick it up. Exactly. And, fun. and yeah. I was like, and he goes, well, why wouldn't you just tell him to mail it? Why not have him mail, mail the 50 bucks? And he, so he just, he didn't get it or understand it, but it is hard to explain to somebody. And then it's funny because after that period ends, when you're trying to explain that you're driving six hours for 50 bucks, then later you have to try to explain to people, you're like, you got $5,000 to do 30 minutes 
and you're like, because if it's like a corporate gig or a college yeah. gig, whatever it is, or like a special, you're like, yeah, but remember when I was getting paid $25, <laughs> like if yeah. you factor it all out, basically over the last 20 years, I'm making six bucks an hour. It's so hard to understand. And then people, I remember people would ask me like, you know, people I barely even knew, they'd be like, well, how much do you make? And I'm like, well, how much do you make? You know, <laughs> I'm putting you in the spot on the spot now. Right. It's you know? a, it's a weird, it's like uh, we're an experiment, you know? Yeah. It's a strange profession. And also it's like, there's no, it's interesting because in show business, if you can call what we're doing show business, um, there's, Not now. <laughs> you're like in the lottery. So like, I always, I've talked about this before, probably on this show, but like, if you're a, a plumber or whatever, you're kind of making that amount of money or, or most jobs. And then every once in a while, you might get a bump up here and there, or a few percentages. But in showbiz, you could catch a couple breaks and all of a sudden be making $10 million a year. You go from making 40 grand to 15 million. Um, so there is like some amount of that. Conversely though, there's no, you could go from making 75 grand to three grand or zero grand in quarantine. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's just basically, we just have to budget and save all the time. Right. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's tricky, but so I want to go back to, um, your anxiety. What's your anxiety like? removed from comedy were you an anxious kid obviously you talked about that a little bit with the back brace and stuff is that where your anxiety began coming back to I think so. it was a combination of of things yeah I think um I think I at some point I just started having panic attacks oh, in fun. my 20s and uh and they were really embarrassing because they were all like outside like I was just sweating like you could just pour a glass of water on me and, and this would happen on, on like first dates, you know, wow. and eventually I just started drinking a lot so that I would get to the first date, like with a good buzz. And then my friend finally dragged me to her shrink and I started taking Clonopin and then I was fine. Um, now I just carry Clonopin in my purse just as like a security thing, but I almost never take it. Like it's gotten so much better. Oh, but wow. at, fir at first, I mean, it could have been an, a restaurant that was too packed and I was, you know, squished between two other people. It could have been an airplane, anything that felt claustrophobic. I just started, I just started sweating so bad. Wow. So this is interesting because I did not know this about you because I started suffering horrible panic attacks in my twenties and also drank and I had Xanax um, and I've gotten much better now. I haven't had a panic attack in a year, just over, over a year, about 13 months. And my previous one before that had been a couple of years. So, but yeah, in my twenties, I started having them. I would shake was like the main symptom I would have, like shaking, like insane, yeah. like, you know, Michael J. Fox in the winter. Uh, <laughs> like oh it would, it would start off, you know, like in my, in my neck or whatever. And I could feel like a little bit and then my stomach, and then it would just start trembling. My hands would start to shake and I'd start to feel like impending doom and then kind of get that like tunnel vision. Yep. Yep. And it would get bad enough that I would have to like lay down on the floor. I would feel like freezing. That's how I would feel goosebumps. Uh -huh. And I would uh -huh. want to be like in a blanket. And very similarly, it started to happen. Because as you know, like once you have 
a really bad panic attack, you start thinking, what if I have this panic attack on a date? What if I have it's it at totally. the mall? Yeah. And then that brings it on. Yeah. And my therapist would say that she's like, you're just panicking about having a panic attack. And I'm like, so I'm, I, that's worse. Now it's like this two layered thing, you know? But for yeah. me, for me, it, it was weird because nothing happened in high school. Then in college, I guess it just hid underneath all of the fraternity parties and drinking and, you know, you know, alcohol everywhere. And then when I moved to New York and um, I would drink all the time when I went out because it was like New York City. Oh, my God, this girl from Virginia is living in New York City. And it was crazy. It was so much fun. And this is before stand up. And then, um, you know, then if a guy asked me out, and I met him drinking, um, you know, I'd go to the date, but I'd go sober. And then the first time it happened, because I had no idea that this was even in, inside of me. And then I would just, I mean, I have had guys just look at me like they thought I was having a stroke. It was just awful. I would just hold the menu up like this. I would be like, um, I think the air conditioner is broken in here. And he was like, um, no, I can feel it. It's like right there, you know? And then eventually I had to meet guys like in the park because rooms were too, it was just too claustrophobic. I had to be like, I'll see you at Central Park. And then it was outside and it was totally fine. It was so weird. Wow. It's like COVID. You were ahead of your time. <laughs> um, yeah. that's, that's amazing. I, I didn't, because I never really went on dates, I never had to deal with that so much, <laughs> I guess. But I feel like I would have fallen in love with you. Like if I, if I saw a woman having a panic attack <laughs> on a date, I would have been like, I got to marry this woman. I mean, this is like amazing. It's amazing um, because it, you know it makes you feel so isolated because I had never seen anyone experience this. And then the looks I would get, I mean, I don't think people were making fun of me, but they genuinely looked like concerned. Like, what the fuck is happening? Like, they wouldn't say that, you know? Like, one time I was waiting with this guy. We went to a Yankees game and we were on the platform of the tra of the subway and it was just, you know, a really warm day and, and there was no, you know, obviously no air conditioning down there. And he just got like right there and I really liked him, but I was completely sober. And I was like, and then I just started going like this. And then, you know, when you feel the panic, you're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, what's happening? And then it just gets worse. Right. And now like my makeup is off. <laughs> like I look like shit and I just want to jump in front of the train. God, it's horrible to even like recall that. And that's the thing that, like you said, is so hard because you feel so isolated. And to me, it always felt like this had never happened to anybody before. Totally. I had this crazy thing that no one's ever heard of. And then when you go to like a doctor or talk to people about it, they don't really know about it. And their instinct is not to go, oh, that's a panic attack. They just go, geez, maybe you have this. And then if you go to a a physical doctor, because you assume you're having a heart attack or a stroke yeah. or something's wrong, something neurological, and then they have to rule out everything. So, like, I remember getting, like, CAT scans and then had, like, a, a heart monitor on me and all this, like, crazy shit, which just increased the anxiety. And it was, like, a while before someone was like, maybe you're having panic attacks. And then See, you're I didn't like, even, oh, okay. I didn't even uh, know to do that. I was, I just kind of accepted it and just drank. 
you know? It was, I did and that then as well. I just drank. And then I remember even it got so bad that um, if I met friends at a bar and I didn't know the bar, I didn't know how many people were going to be in the bar. I didn't know if I was going to talk to like a cute guy or if he was going to get really close. The closeness is a big one. Like if I didn't know the variables, I got nervous. So I would go to a bar and drink and then go to the bar, the real bar where I was meeting my friends. Yeah, I did. Because I didn't know that clonopin was a thing. Once clonopin was in my life, my life changed. But now have you done since then? Are you still in therapy? Do you still go to therapy for this? Oh yeah, therapy. I not for this, but just oh, and then I started stand up. So this was all before stand up. Wow. So when I started to do stand up, um, I was still very nervous. I didn't always sweat on stage because it's the one on one and the close up of like you know feeling intimidated or feeling self conscious that did it. But if it was a bunch of people in the dark and they were all kind of seen as one person, that didn't make me nervous. So it was, it was very weird to think that one person could make me nervous and like a thousand didn't. I feel the exact same way. I mean, I relate to all of that because I think for me, it, the way I interpret it, it wasn't, but maybe it is now that I'm thinking about it, it wasn't so much the closeness as the control I'm in control of the situation. They're all yeah. sitting in, in the dark and I have the microphone and yeah. somebody's going to throw them out or people get mad at them if they say anything. But the one-on-one, I'm no longer in control and they could say something or ask yes. me something or, or physically attack. It's just, it felt lack of control in the situation. Same with a, a date or at a party or whatever it was. And so I would also drink excessively because of it. But, but that's why um, if there was one person in the audience who was even looking at me in like a judgmental way in the front row, or he was cute, or he was just kind of like, if, if that person was there, it would start anyway. Like it wasn't any show. I was, I had bad shows too, where I was literally like sweating. Wow. Awful. And so, that doesn't happen anymore, though, but it used to happen a lot. So for you, it's mostly the sweating. Did you shake, too, and kind of slur words? or No, I had shortness of breath and sweatiness, and then I had chills, like you said, when you were cold. But mm-hmm. that was because I was sweating. And then, you know, after, after sweating so much, you're, you just feel cold. Right. The sweating stopped. Now, what about, I'm interested in this, too, because you did Letterman... What year did you do Letterman? Uh, 2012. I did it in 2015, but the first one was in 2012. Okay. So yeah, yeah. just about the year before, about a year before me. I think I, I think I did 2014, I guess. I can't even remember now. Jeez. It's so weird how it's like you do these things that are the most significant moment of your entire life. And then you're like, what, what year was that? I know. <laughs> I think it was 2014 that I did it. So did you were you still dealing with this when you did Letterman or had you discovered clonopin at that time? I discovered clonopin, but I wouldn't take it for something like that because you know it does make you a little drowsy and a little almost like um dull. Yes. After a while. Um so I remember I talked to my therapist the morning of Letterman and then oh and the control thing is true as well because all i had to do was do my 5 minutes like if i was doing an hour for hbo or something crazy like that then i'm sure 
that day I would have taken something. But this was five minutes and everything, as you know, was just literally taking care of care for you. You know, it was, you're going to walk to this spot. You're going to do your five minutes. They're doing your makeup, you know? So it was a lot of meditation and therapy and just breathing before that. Okay, so you so at what point did you get into meditation? Because I love talking about well, meditation. I'm I'm not I don't do it that much. I only I mean meditation more like just sitting, like doing it my own way, just breathing, Carmen, you're worthy, all that stuff. Right. Um, but real meditation I just started during the um corona. Like I'm starting to listen to Sam Harris and Eckhart Eckhart Tolle I've been reading for years but I haven't literally sat down and just told myself to meditate ever and I'm just starting now. Oh those are those are two of my guys. I mean Sam Harris is like my hero. I love that guy and Eckhart I talk about every episode. Power of Now is one of my favorite er- books. He's the best. Yeah. I go to his YouTube or Instagram page within like 30 seconds yeah. I'm like ah Yes. No, well, he's he, the they best. both have that they both have very soothing voices too. Yes. And um, it bums me out that Eckhart's getting old because I, I don't want him to die ever because I've been listening to him for so long. But um, but um, his YouTubes, I go to all the time. No, they're, they're incredible. It's amazing. And, and he's actually like really funny too. Like he'll he's make jokes so and it like, funny. It like kill. I'm like, this guy's murdering. <laughs> no, he's so good. Um, no, he's awesome. But so I want to go through Letterman because I had a similar experience because like I had dealt with the panic attacks and it's funny because quitting drinking helped me a lot with my anxiety. Um, but So you didn't have stuff that like surfaced after the drinking, like the drinking went away because that that's kind of like the solution to issues. I feel like drinking is, do you know what I mean? You didn't have things like come up once you stopped drinking because I feel like it's almost worse then. See, things came up, but to me, I thought drinking was the solution for me, but it was just making it worse because I would just get, my life was just like unmanageable. Like I would forget to do things and I wouldn't respond to calls and I would be double booked and I wouldn't cancel one of them until last minute. So like all of those things added to my anxiety. And I also was behaving in like insane because I got like crazy drunk and I would like you know, vandalize and black out and forget yes. where I was and stuff where it was just All like, the time. Yeah, yeah. So this wasn't like making me feel any, I was, it was adding to my anxiety. Um, but eventually I sort of, I went to a therapist way back then. And like when I first started having panic attacks and she helped with my panic attacks, they ended up coming back later. But when it was time to do Letterman, I had been sober for a year and hadn't had panic attacks in a few years, but the idea, I remember just imagining yeah. and being like, okay, it's time. Like having a headset and be like, here we yeah. go. And I remember just thinking like, I'm going to lose my mind when that happens. Yeah. And I remember watching the movie Comedian like shortly before I went and did uh, my late night and like watching Orny Adams like take the elevator down. And it gave me like almost an anxiety attack watching that, thinking about it. Yeah. So, you know, actually I did take something because... The, f- the funny part is, you know, what made me really nervous about late night is because um, at that point I knew that people who get too close, it, it was too much. It made me anxious. So the makeup people could make me sweat like this. Interesting. 
So anytime I get a lot of makeup done or something, that that sometimes I have to like take a clonopin. It's funny. I get really nervous in the makeup chair too because it starts to feel real. And there's something yeah. about you've been taken outside of your world because in the dressing room, you're kind of, again, like kind of in control and everybody's like, what yes. can I do for you? Yeah. And you're pacing and you're like, could you quiet down? And could you just tell me a when you're in the makeup room, you've lost your friends, you're out of that yes. space. And then they're just, this is what's always so fascinating about these TV things. Everybody else is just living their life. They're just at their job that they're at every day. So the makeup yeah. lady is watching, you know, Sarah, Jessica, Raphael or whatever. And she's like, oh, this yeah. is kooky. And you're like, just freaking out. And they're not trained in mental health or anything. They're just like, ah, you'll be yeah. fine or whatever. It's, it starts to get freaky. But so when you were right before you were going out for Letterman, were you sweating and nervous? Did you feel really calm? No, because if, if I took it, if I took it for like the makeup, I would, first of all, for anything like that, I would never take too much because I was almost more afraid of, um, of becoming dull and losing my, you know, your, your sense of yourself, you know? Right. And, um, so if I took one, I would take it like early and maybe like break a little piece. It was just enough to get me going where I could still be a little nervous and, but not sweat, Right. you know, and the makeup chair, if I could get through the makeup chair, I could get through anything. Right. Cause that's in your face. You know, the, the actual show, the like Letterman, you know, it feels like a regular show. To me, yeah. I got more nervous because every late night I did, I think every single late night I've done except one, um, it always aired the next day. So that 24 hours after I was done and just waiting for it to air, that was my worst time. Because now I'm just going like, oh my God, you did that thing. Oh my God, what if this happened? Oh my God, what if you look shiny? What if... And I just all this negative um, conversation in my head was driving me crazy. But I can handle that because I'm alone at this point. I, no one needs to see me. Right. You know? God, it's so interesting. I remember, my, yeah, my Letterman aired the next day too. And, but to me, for some reason, it felt like, no, I guess that anxiety came in too. But for some reason, it felt like I, I did it, I survived it. Because somehow my fear is always going to be with late night is I'm not going to be able to go out there they're going to, I just picture the host, Dave being like, what, what is this? Like he's waiting and they have to go up and the guy with a headset has to be like, Hey, the comic yeah. couldn't come out. And he's like, what? And he's like, we don't have anything planned. Like what, get him out here. And I just picture yeah. me getting pushed by like two stage hands and I'm trying to like <laughs> run away. And they're like, you got to go out there. And that was always my big fear is like, I won't be able to go out there, but. Did you me, take anything to like get yourself out there? No, because people advised against, like, like you said, yeah. like, I just, you want to be present for it. And yeah. ultimately it took me years to realize this and therapy and stuff. And Eckhart totally helped, but just the idea of that fear is just fear and your thoughts aren't reality, which has become totally. like my mantra is that it's just fear. And as my therapist always says, of course, like, of course you're anxious. Like I'm, I'm like, I'm so nervous. And he's like, of course it makes sense. You should be nervous. You're on TV or whatever situation when you're anxious, usually it's like, it, it makes sense. It's your body trying to, uh, 
you're nervous. I mean, you have a nervous system. It's there for a reason. So it's no big now, deal. It's just anxiety. Do you think that um, it's something nature or is it nurture? Like, do you think it's something like it runs in your family? Or do you think if you had therapy at age 10 or your parents or guardians had been more like, let it all out. Things are wonderful. Stay, do you think it would have changed you? I think, well, my therapist is, and I've heard people be like, he's completely incorrect. But my therapist, who I love and treasure, um, he says it's all learned behavior. His thought is there's some things like, um, you know, bipolar or maybe a couple things that are hereditary neurological diseases or whatever. But most behavior is learned. And my mother is extremely anxious. My father had anxiety and his brother and had panic attacks. And um, I think it's more the way I was raised in my family, the way my family yeah. connects and responds to things is sort of trained. I don't know, but I, I think about that all the time. I'm like, if I grew up in, you know, Haleiwa, Hawaii, would I be completely different? Would I be like, surf yeah. guy and the, Hey man, all right, it's cool. Yeah. Or would I be this way? I don't know. What do you think? I think it's what everything you said, because I mean, I, my father comes from a, an alcoholic side and I think that generation, no one in my family has ever been to therapy before. Mm -hmm. So I think they just learned how to just deal with it and they've never really had to live outside of their bubble. So, you know, um, my parents met quickly. They got married. They're still together. So they didn't have, I mean, it's their own struggles, but like, you know, maybe they just never had to deal with therapy or medication, you know, yeah. just yeah, a different world. Totally. My, my parents the same way. They got married really young and they got pregnant with my sister and then they were just sort of together. And my father's sort of Boston Irish Catholic, not, not a lot of, feelings and it was a lot of uh my mother sort of was overly protective and there was a lot of i think my family the adults just talked pretty plainly around kids so there was a lot yeah. of revealing a lot of what could go wrong in life of like you know we don't want anyone breaking in the house we got to put the locks up because people will just break <laughs> it totally, stuff yeah. like that where you're like what and yeah. then like i remember my uncle who's like four years older than me. I always have to say people, I say uncle, people think he's 30 yeah. years older than me, but some friends that were my age essentially got jumped at down the end of my street. Like they got mugged and it's funny that the sirens going off while I'm talking about getting mugged. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, but Rest they in. got, they got mugged when I was 11. It was during the 93 world series. I remember. And like, there was just like, Oh my God, we got mugged. And like, we got to call the police. They just jumped out of the bushes. And to me, like, I was just like, oh, 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 my God, like people can jump out of the bushes. Like, and no one ever sat me down to be like, listen, like bad things happen, but most likely they won't. And I can remember driving through bad neighborhoods and my family being like, lock the doors, people. And the idea that like, wait, someone could just open our car door and, and pull us out of here. Like, there was a lot of stuff like that, um, that you're like, Jesus, this is crazy. And so I think it just put yeah. this crazy fear in you. And this feeling of lack of control was really scary. I, I don't know. I mean, those are some thoughts that I've had that could lead me to feel that way.
Yeah, I remember moving to New York and at some point, I mean, it was such a, I guess I was living in a sort of a bubble coming from Virginia, but then moving to New York, I was like, this is crazy and amazing and look at all these opportunities. But then one day it hit me like, I, it's almost like I almost wasn't ready mentally to deal with anything. Right. You know, and that's when I, I went through this, I need to talk to somebody because, you know, in, in, a, in that generation, especially in my family, you know, you don't go see a therapist or a, that's like for crazy people, you know? Yes. Yeah, same. No, I, I felt it's, th- it's not to improve yourself. You know, yeah. it's, it's because you need to build, you are, you are bipolar or schizophrenic or something. Yes, exactly. It's something that you, you go see if you have like a, a straight jacket on. It's just every, the walls are white and everyone's wearing yeah. white and it's not something that just regular people go to, but I mean, I couldn't recommend it more. Um, but also there was no time to really, um, process things there was no like i i mean i'm a big believer now that like meditation should be taught in like public school when you're like six time to yeah. like sit and reflect and focus on your breath and and kind of go inward um, yeah which i've only learned in the last couple of years through eckhart tolle and uh sam harris and jack cornfield and all these great meditation people and getting really into meditation and and therapy of course which i also think is so important because it's more you and specific to you and your family. And it's exercising your brain, your mental, you know, it's not a bad thing. It just has this negative connotation like you're crazy. Um, I want to ask you about the quarantine because what happened to me is even with years of therapy, when stand-up ended, I became so anxious because I was like, what are you going to do now? what are you going to do with all this time on your hands? And I just got very, um, very anxious. And I knew, you know, when you know something intellectually and your therapist tells you, but you don't practice it. Like I knew I was running away from stuff. I know that like I avoid things by like, Oh, I'll just go to the gym or I'll just go to Spain and see my sister. Like, I know I do that, but I never really went inward to see what it is that I was running from but not because I didn't want to, but I just couldn't figure it out. So I was like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to do road gigs all the time and just leave all the time. And then the quarantine happened and I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do with myself? And then we figured out that, you know, everything is a distraction. Everything I do is not everything like, but, but it just, it felt like I was just using everything to just stop from looking inside and then I realized um, through Eckhart that there's like being and doing and everything I was, was doing was to do something and I wasn't sitting still to just be. Right. And that has been my biggest thing in the quarantine is like whenever I get up and I want to go do, I just check in and I go, just, so cheesy, but I'm like, just be, you know? Yes. And every, every workout I do, everything is fast paced because it makes me feel like I'm running away. And now I'm doing the opposite where I'm like yoga, you know, meditate, just be. And it's, it's, it's crazy. It's so, it's hard for me. I'm not going to lie. It's really hard. Well, that reminds me of one of my favorite Buddhist sayings that you've probably heard is don't just do something, sit there. 
That's really funny. That yeah. Yeah, I, I, mean, yeah. I love that one because I, I feel that way all the time. And, and Sam Harris talks about this too, this idea of that we all have this limited time, what to do with our time. And instead of thinking we have limited time, so we got to get as much done as possible. It's like we have limited time, so we should slow things down and do less things and have more yes. quality time because we have a limited time. Um, but, but it's so hard in this, in this career that we have, you know, not that no one else has this problem, but like in ours, I feel like it's, um, we got to go to the airport. Oh, we got to pack. Is it tomorrow? And then we have a podcast and we have a show and then we're not going to say no to anything because you never know when this is going to dry up or, you know, whatever. And you want to take every opportunity. So I'm just constantly like just doing, 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 doing. And then I'm complaining about why, why it feels like it was just Friday and now it's Friday again. And why is time going by so fast? And my therapist is like, just chill right you know and i'm like but but the, but there's a show tonight and so and so is going to be there and i want to you know it's so hard that's why i've really enjoyed like flourished in quarantine um because i've spent so much time meditating and listening to meditation speakers and these buddhist speakers and i'm reading more yes and i started um meeting up with some friends three times a week and, and talking about our problems and, and working on this podcast. And um, part of with comedy, what's strange about it to me is you're always scheduling down the road. Like you have to be like, all right, like my agent's like, here's, and I'm getting booked further and further out. So he's like, okay, here's a date from March of 2021. So you're like, wait, I'm already planning seven months from now. So mentally, and then like when you're giving your avails for spots, you're giving them a month in advance and a week in advance. So you're always yeah. thinking about next Thursday and next June. And then what do I have on August? Whereas in some jobs, and don't get me wrong, I think I'd rather be a comedian than any other job, but most jobs you just go, okay, I'm, this is what I'm working. I'm working here for the next whatever you don't you're not thinking nine months in advance right whereas comedy you have to kind of make these decisions of like do you want to do tampa in february <laughs> and you're like okay i guess so you are always and like you said you're you're packing for thursday and for me september through december i flew every weekend like yeah 17 weeks in a row so you're flying sunday and you're flying thursday and then you're flying sunday and you're it is a lot to deal with and again i never want to sound like we're taking away from people that are on a hot roof every day. Roofing. Right. Um, right. But just specifically, I can only speak to my own experience. That makes it a very stressful job. So everything shutting down has definitely changed my perspective and makes me want yes. to go a lot slower moving forward. Well, now it does. Like it took me a while, but um, you know, I want to do things that I don't ever do in a regular you know, non COVID season, like, um, like reading, like you said, I used to be very anxious reading because I'm like, why am I reading a book? I should be writing a joke, right. you know, or checking my phone. And, uh, and it's funny, like now I've, I've slowed down on social media, not, I've never, I haven't even thought about it, but I'm just like, Oh, I haven't posted something in three days, but, and, and, you know, not that that's bad or good, but, but it's, I guess your brain just shifts and you're just like, well, I could just go bike riding today, you know, and stare at a tree, you know, <laughs> and that, that kind of stuff is coming in more than it used to. 
Yeah, well, I'm having that experience too. And this is another thing that Sam Harris is always talking about. And then pretty much any other mental health expert and neuroscientist is talking about is that the phones and social media are really quite destructive to our brain, our brain chemistry and our relationships. And uh, it's really sick. So I, I took Twitter off my phone, which is really... Mm-hmm. Um, helping me because that's just a cesspool of negativity. I apologize to the fans for not favoriting their tweets immediately, which I do feel like guilt about. I like, I'm like, I'm like, I gotta go to my tweets and hit favorite. People will get mad if they write something nice and I don't favorite it. Um, but I'm trying to let go of that and be more present with people and do more phone calls, calling friends yeah. and family and checking in with them and, and then having actual discussions instead of just text or emails and Twitter and stuff. Yeah. And then I try to do what Eckhart says, which is like to, you know, stay present. So if you're emptying the dishwasher, you're like looking at the dish right? and, you know, not thinking about what you're going to do next, but that kind of stuff is, is hard. Yeah. You know, well, I think it's, it's really hard. And it's, well, it's reprogramming your entire brain and system and we put so much value on maximizing our time. Like yeah. you're in line at Starbucks. You're like, let me send these emails. That way I'm, I'm waiting for my coffee, but I'm also sending emails. And then yeah. like, while your podcast is uploading, like, let me do some jumping jacks. So I get a little head start on my exercise or let me text while I'm waiting for the bus. It's all this stuff that we're never fully present for the actual activity because we're trying to multitask to save time. And what's so ironic is you do those things to free up time. And then in that free time, you end up looking at Instagram, like we're just watching TV or something. I know. So it's like we're freeing up time that we don't even use valuably. Well, do you ever do this? Um, like you're, you have a goal. So you're like, oh, I have to text so-and-so. You open your phone you go to Instagram and then you never text that person. And then you go, well, wait, I was going to do something and I can't remember what I was going to do. And it's, it's just, it happens to me all the time. And I'm like, just go. Like, it's almost like before you open the fridge, my mom would always say, before you open the fridge, figure out what you want. And I'm like, well, I can't cause I don't know what's in the fridge, but like, I want to take my phone and be like, okay, what are you going to do? You're going to write that email. And then almost always I don't, I'm like, Oh, Oh, look, so-and-so tweeted this. Right. Yeah. That's an, another thing I do with the phone is that like, we'll do, I'll do something like this where we're having a great conversation for an hour. And then as soon as it ends, instead of sitting and processing it or feeling <laughs> it, the first thing I do is pick up my phone. Yeah. I'm like, let me check Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, email, and then respond to text. And then I'll spend, sometimes I'll do that. And I look and I'm like, we finished that podcast 40 minutes ago. Like I just looked at my phone for 40 straight minutes. Yes. And uh, now this like wonderfully meaningful conversation is just completely erased from my, my feeling and being my soul. And I've just moved on to nine other things. It's crazy. I try to think of what I would be like on my deathbed and just be like, did you enjoy your life? You know? And I don't want to be like, I'm so glad I, I tweeted so much. Exactly. I I tweeted about that recently that I'm like, I am 100% sure my biggest regret will be looking at my phone too much. And yet I'm still doing it. 
That's what a strong addiction it is. It's crazy. There's no way any of us are going to be on our deathbed if we're fortunate enough to die on a deathbed and not. I know. Is that such a thing? Yeah. Um, But like, there's no way anyone's like, God, I wish I had spent a little bit more time staring at my phone. It's. I I know it's weird. Maybe I want to hear about your. I want to hear about your death fears, though, because I have so many. Um, Is there any way? Is there any way I can go use the bathroom really fast? Is that is there such a thing as interrupting this or no? Sure. Uh, yeah, you sure? I don't. Okay. Yeah, I think we can edit it. I'm sure my producer can edit it. Because I want to ask you about death, but I really have to use the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. Use the bathroom because okay. I want you to die from using the bathroom. Okay. Um, We're back. So my death issues, like I am, so, I'm just. I don't know where this came from, but about two years ago. I started freaking out about dying. Oh, wow. And I'm like, I've known about death for, you know, since I was born pretty much or whenever you learn about it. But there's just this crazy fear that we're all going to have to say goodbye to each other. (laughs) Isn't that weird? And it's out of my control. Like, I can't just tell myself, well, it's just normal. Like, it just creeped up on me like two years ago. Yeah, it's interesting because I had that like cripplingly in my mid-20s. Um, and it's gotten a little better, but God, where was I reading it? Uh, oh, this book called that I talk about on every episode called the antidote, the antidote by Oliver Berkman. Okay. A great book. Text me. Yeah. I highly recommend it. I'll text it to you after the, after the podcast, but there's a whole chapter about like that. We are like hardwired that you can't truly focus on your own death for more than about six seconds without your brain trying to switch off into some other thing. And it's actually like wild that we're able to do that, that any of us are able to carry on not thinking about this inevitable eternity of darkness. But do you think that's true? Because I honestly think about it all the time. So I don't agree with that guy. But you think about it, but do you think about it, actually think about it sustained, or is it just coming back into your head and you try to watch Mm. a movie or a TV or whatever, like fully sustained thought about like, because I think if you like, for me, when I really think about like being gone and never coming back no chance of ever yeah being alive in the earth again like my brain i start to be like all right, all right woo, woo. and i'll start to pick up a book or look at something or find some porn to watch or something yeah it's it's hard to but like certainly i've obsessed over it where it keeps popping back into my head um but i've read a bunch of things that we should actually spend we should spend time thinking about it because it allows you to feel gratitude for being alive and, and being able to see and feel and, and hear everything because eventually yeah. we won't be able to. And it is a thing that is uncontrollable. Like we are going to die. So it's like the ultimate, yeah. like you need to accept it. But I have dealt with that and it's horrible. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's weird. And I find that that the rushing to get as much done as I possibly can actually makes it worse, you know? Because um, yes. I'm like, oh, we're dying. So that means we're running out of time. 
So I should do as much as I can. That's not true at all. It's the opposite, like you said. It's like, all right, slow things down and really just live your life doing what you really want to do. Yeah. That, Don't just and, jam it all in there. Yeah. yeah. And, and trying to spend time figuring out what you really value because it's so cliche, Because, but you, we could really die at any moment. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is a lot of like realizing that, thinking about it, accepting it, and um, thinking about what we want to do with our time here and what we value. Uh, so I'm very grateful that you spent an hour on this podcast. <laughs> but, but no, I used to have it when I, in my 20s, especially when I was drinking, like every single night when I was drinking at some point, I would get really, really down and bum uh -huh. everybody out by being like, we're all going to die. This sucks. Um, but one thing I think about, and I talked about this, I think on last week's episode, is I remember talking to a comedian named Shane Moss and doing that and saying, it sucks that we're going to die. And he was like, well, it'd be worse if we didn't. Um, so it would suck if we didn't die. Also, yeah. like it's, it's kind of like there can be no good without bad and there can be no bad without good. There can be no happy without sad. There can right. be no up without down. There can be no life without death. Well, I think the, the part about death that probably makes it more comfortable is that we age. So by the time, you know, you're 80 and you have arthritis and your back hurts and you whatever, then you're like, please kill me now because I don't want to live like this anymore. You know, we're thinking about it in a state where we still feel good and you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Alan Watts has talked about that. He's another guy I love. Alan Watts and Thich Nhat Hanh, who are two of my go-to guys. Um, they both talk about that too, is that when you imagine dying, usually when death pops into your, your brain, the fear of it, it's usually when something good is happening. It's usually because you're enjoying Aww. yourself and you're happy. It speaks to the fact that you really enjoy life. You don't want to say goodbye to your friends and to your life and to comedy or your home, whatever it is. And so it's like your brain, it pops in that like, oh, we're going to lose all of this. It's really fear of loss. But those guys have talked about, you have to understand that you will get to a point and a moment when you're like, yeah, I'm ready. That was a good, that was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm happy to, to shuffle off now. Um, but that's part of meditation, I think, too, is spending time acknowledging that that will happen. There's nothing you can do about it, except you can try to control what you can control by eating well and exercising. How long after meditation did you start to really make feel a difference, like a positive I, difference? It's hard to say because it's such a combination to me. Like I... This therapy was, I think, is like the main thing that's really helped me. And then meditate. It, it took a while for meditation. I think everything, it takes a long time to actually get through to you. Everything your therapist says, yeah. everything like guided meditation says, and Eckhart and Alan Watts and Thich Nhat Hanh, all these people, you have to hear the same thing over and over again to kind of have it break through. So it's hard to say. I'm also like, actively sober which helps that yeah helps me and um but i think a few months maybe even a year i mean i've been meditating for a long time really consistently like the last eight months or a year or so and it's really i can feel it like i wake up anxious then i start my day meditating and i feel mm -hmm. better throughout the day and i usually do it again later in the day at some point but mindfulness now, when, has helped a lot yeah 
when you um, have a panic attack, like you said a year ago, you had a panic attack. What do you do now to deal with it? Do you just go, I'm going to let this, let this come out and just deal with it? Or you know what I mean? Or do you panic about no, it? That was the biggest thing that helped me. And that's another thing I had to hear a hundred times before it actually got through and made sense to me because it was so counterproductive, but to accept that you're having a panic attack and to yeah. just let it be because the more you resist, the worse it gets. You have to be like, oh, here's a panic attack I'm having. This is temporary. It will go away. There's the thing where my leg shakes. Here's where I can't breathe properly. Right. And it kind of takes the teeth out of it. And also you lose the thing that we talked about earlier, the fear of the panic attack. Yeah. The more you have them, the more you're like, oh, this is this thing. It lasts like 20 minutes at the most. And then afterwards, afterwards you feel kind of strangely good in a way. We were like, woof, that's Like over. you defeated that. Yeah. But you know what? It's, what's hard about that is that the times that I have it are important. So I'm not going to like do that on a TV show or... You know, I'm not going to just say, you know what, this time the makeup lady, I'm just going to let her do her thing, you know, and just start sweating in the middle of the makeup session, you know? Yeah. Like I have one on a plane, which has not happened in years. I had a bad one on a plane about a year ago and the plane was about to take off and I was like... Oh my God. Oh my God. What's happening. And, and it was just because I got the window seat and I usually get the aisle. I mean, it can be that stupid where I just feel trapped in the window seat. And, uh, and we were already taking off. We were like this already. So if I didn't have that clonopin, I'm like, would I have punched somebody? Like it, it got bad really fast. And even if it doesn't, um, kick in immediately the fact that i can just go get the clonopin take it like it starts to just go away because i know in my head that it's gonna calm down in a second it's just really weird it's so it's like yeah. mind tricks you know totally yeah it feels like i've taken an action i've done something to start to help so the process has begun of me helping it i i feel that way with like even like hypochondria of like thinking I have some kind of liver problem or eye problem, whatever it is, I used to have a lot worse. I would go to the doctor and just by making the appointment, it would start to feel better. Being in the waiting yes. room, talking to the doctor, yeah. I would be like, okay, I'm, whatever it is, I'm taking care of it. And then of course it would be nothing and go away. It was just anxiety, but um, yeah. yeah I, I just, I find it would be hard to like try that in a situation where I didn't have it. Cause all those moments where I have it, they're kind of important. I don't know. They're kind of a big deal. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, totally. I mean, I had a panic attack on Conan, like right before walking out on Conan and it was horrible. It was my worst nightmare come true. But I've talked about this before on the show. What ended uh. up, it ended up being amazing in a way because I had this panic attack where I was shaking and I, I was like, losing my mind like my head was spinning but i was able to still just do the set i went out and said all the jokes yeah and i was freaking out but no one else even knew like the audience was there they were laughing and, the, and my friends yeah. were like what i didn't know that nobody noticed and so i had a panic attack at the exact worst time you could have one yeah and i was fine and that yeah. like changed my whole being my whole experience on earth because it was like 
oh, those panic attacks can't really do anything. Right. That's I would get real. I would get really jealous of people like you because your panic attacks don't show like they don't that you people can't tell whereas like mine like I remember having them a lot you know years ago and going like why does it have to be sweating why can't my big toe just shake or you know my pinky just like you know freak out you know why does it have to be like all in my face where people just look at me and go (laughs) Right. right. Well, I think also it helps that like on TV, it's harder to see. Like if you were standing next to me in real life, like my teeth would be shattering, but I was like talking through it and it kind of fended off. But like I've had it where like my teeth are like chattering. So I can't even like get get a sentence out and it's shaking. Yeah. I think as it was on TV, I just kind of tried to really stay put. So like under my suit, I'm trembling, but it was hard to notice yeah. and it just looked like regular like tv nerves um, that's awesome though but that you got through it yeah i mean i was grateful for sure um but i think for me now i've kind of slowly found this perfect concoction of like doing this show is helpful to me and meditating and listening to sam harris and listening to eckhart tolle and reading Thich Nhat Hanh and then going to therapy and then reaching out to friends. It's like, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm running, like doing cardio. I started doing uh, like mixed martial art. Like I have to, nice. it is like a full-time job for me to stay anywhere near an even keel. Yeah. Yeah. That's, but it's so worth it. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. It's, and it took me like 38 years to kind of be yeah. like, Oh, I think I'm starting to figure it out. But don't you feel like if you had a child, you would be so ready to tell them everything? Like you would be such a good mentor to anyone. I, you know, I think so. I hope so. Yeah. You would but, just be like, "All right, what's happening? Okay, let me tell you what to do." Right, <laughs> you know, right. Which is which is what we didn't get, which is fine. But I'm just saying, like, you're so prepared to help others now. Yeah, hundred percent. I think it would be better because I would be like, let's process what's going on yeah let's spend time sitting no tv no anything just sitting and and talking and i think also and i've talked about this before on the show the most important thing you can do with a child is to respond to whatever they're saying and let them feel seen and heard as as people talk about so much these days yeah and to be like yes that makes sense that is a real and to understand i think the our parents' generation, when we were kids, did not really understand. This is like what Mr. Rogers was all about, is that children uh-huh. have real feelings and fears and emotions just like adults. They're, all of their feelings and thoughts are just as real as, as adults, where people, I think, years ago thought children are just like, ah, he's dumb, just give him a, let him watch TV, feed him, and yeah. uh, let him put him to bed. And in reality, it's like they have really real uh, fears and concerns and empathy and all those things. They just can't articulate them yet. They don't know how to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So we're making the world a better place. I think so. A little bit. And we're bringing laughter and joy. And and speaking of which, we got to wrap up, but I want to plug your special. You have a new special or is it just an album? It's just an album. Um, it was my last weekend on the road. It was the very end of February at the Comedy Attic in Bloomington, Indiana. 
And um, I asked Jared, the owner, I'm like, can I just record it? Because, you know, things are looking like the world is going to end. And I even talk about Corona on stage. And I'm like, I, I recorded it all four shows. And then I just decided to put Saturday, one of Saturday nights into an album. So, wow. And what's the album called? Vertically Obese. And it's available right now. It's available right now. Um, you can pre-order it and then it's uh, everywhere July 7th, but please pre-order it because that helps. Okay, awesome. Well, this, but, this will come yeah. out Thursday, July 2nd, I think. So oh, pre, sweet. pre-order it, Carmen Lynch, uh-huh. Vertically, what is it? Vertically Obese? Vertically Obese. And then I also have a podcast called The Human Centipod. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Check that out. Go subscribe, get the album. And I will have already said this, but Carmen, you're one of my favorite comics and you're one of stars. We always, we always talk about how much we love you. I I love you guys. You have one of my, thank you. You have one of my most told jokes that I tell everybody the joke. Oh, I know what it is. I have two nieces. (laughs) One of them's five and the other one's fat. Uh, my favorite oh bits my God. of all one time. Day one day they're going to know about that show. They, they still don't. Oh, yeah. What so, can you do? Well, I mean, yeah. it happens. You can explain it to them and um, whatever. But I love that joke. I love all your uh, jokes. And uh, we're, we're big fans. So, and also, thank it just you. Back happened, at you. Happened to be a bonus that I did. I had no idea you were such an anxious panic attack person. <laughs> You're just somebody I like to talk to in yes. a great comic. So. Uh, well, good. Then it was even better. I'm glad I was anxious for you. No, it was perfect. For, you, for your it. podcast. No, you were awesome. It was a great episode so. and I enjoyed it. And my wife was locked out like Fred Flintstone the whole time. So. Um, and can I, can I put my social media on it as well? Or are you going to do that too? No, I'll do it as well, oh. but please say it. At Carmen Comedian, everything at Carmen Comedian. Yeah. And that's it. Perfect. All right. Check Thanks, out. Joe. Thank you, Carmen. It was great to see you. Hopefully, I'll see you in real life sometime. Good to soon. see you. We'll talk about meditation next time I see you in person. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, Carmen. All right. Take Appreciate care. It. Bye. Mindful Metal Jacket is hosted by comedian Joe List. Produced by Joe List. Edited by Matt Kleinschmidt. Executive producers Robert Kelly and Matt Kleinschmidt for the Laugh Button Podcasts.